afternoon and welcome to the 128th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I discuss data visualization, COVID-19 and risk communication with Alex Wellerstein. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 16th, 2020, there are 29,664,114 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, that's up from 29 million 365,289 cases reported yesterday. 6,610,352 of those are in the United States. That's up from 6,570,889 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 196,349 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 195,047 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. Today's obituary is not a COVID-19 obituary, but it is an important person relevant to many of the discussions we've had on COVID calls, and it's an obituary that I worry sort of flew a little bit below the radar in the midst of the pandemic. Francis Crow, peace activist and war resistor, dies at 100, is the headline by Catherine Q. Seeley. This appeared in the New York Times, August 28. In 1945, when she was at home in New Orleans, ironing a placemat, Francis Crow was alarmed to hear on the radio that in its efforts to end World War II, the United States had dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. The bomb instantly vaporized tens of thousands of people and ultimately killed as many as 135,000. She immediately unplugged her iron and went looking for a gathering spot or peace center to find like-minded people with whom she could share her distress, unsuccessful. She went into a used bookstore where she searched for material on nonviolence. The bookstore owner suggested Tolstoy. So I started reading a collection of Tolstoy's essays on war and violence, she recalled years later. And you know, that kind of set my direction. She was 26 at the time. For the next three quarters of a century, she would dedicate herself to trying to make the world a more peaceful place. Ms. Crow died August 25th at her home in Northampton, Massachusetts. She was 100. Her daughter, Kaltha Crow, said Miss Crow was exhausted and had taken to her bed, a highly unusual development for this energetic centenarian. She said her mother had said this body is no longer livable and this is what it feels like to die. For decades, Miss Crow was a fixture in the peace movement and in multiple causes for social justice that swirled around Northampton, college town where she raised her family. Miss Crow was an instinctive pacifist for almost all her life, 
Her professional activism began in 1968 when she started counseling young men facing the draft during the Vietnam War about becoming conscientious objectors. 50 years later, she was arrested for protesting the expansion of a natural gas pipeline through a state forest in Western Massachusetts. She was 98 and in a wheelchair. Somebody just told me that at my age, the way to be happy was to play cards all day. And I said, hogwash, she said in an interview for the obituary. People my age can afford to take risks to be arrested, she added. After you've raised your family, now's the time for us, the elders, to act. A tiny, sprightly woman with a thick mop of white hair, a pleasant smile, and a polite manner that belied her determination, Miss Crow was arrested so often that she lost track. Not enough, she said, when asked how many times she had been booked, but probably around a hundred. She said she had been jailed in every state in New England, usually on charges of trespassing or civil disobedience. Her chief cause was protesting nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, which she said was her priority given their power to wipe out life on Earth. In 1984, she spent a month in federal prison after painting Thou Shalt Not Kill on the casings of missile tubes at a nuclear submarine base in Rhode Island. She was released at the urging of the Reverend Jesse Jackson, who was running for president and hoping to find favor with white liberal New Englanders. Working in the pre-internet era, she did much of her organizing by the seat of her pants. During the Vietnam War, when she was counseling draft-age men, she would mimeograph flyers with information and then go out and pick up students who were hitchhiking among the colleges in the region. I drove back between Northampton and Amherst, spending the day talking to my passengers, saying, well, what are you going to do about the draft and passing my flyers back from my front seat, she said in a 2008 oral history interview archived at Smith College. I drove slow and talked fast. She eventually counseled roughly 2,000 young men. In her later years, she wrote a memoir, Finding My Radical Soul, which came out in 2014 and protested the nation's war efforts by refusing to pay federal income taxes. She put her house and other assets in a trust. The government then docked 15% of her social security check each month. She gave a third of her tax savings to international peace organizations, a third to American peace organizations, and a third to the Northampton Public Schools. As she looked forward to her 100th birthday, she told the New York Times, I don't want to party. I want an action that will accomplish something. Okay, let's turn to our conversation for today. I'm really excited to talk with Alex Wellerstein. He's an assistant professor and director of the Science and Technology Studies Program at the Stevens Institute of Technology. He has a PhD in the history of science and his research interests are primarily in the history of nuclear technology. His book, Restricted Data, The History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States, will be available from the University of Chicago Press early next year. He is the creator of the NukeMap Online Nuclear Weapons Simulator and taught courses on data visualization for social purposes for many years. He's also a co-PI for the Reinventing Civil Defense Project sponsored by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which is tasked with developing a holistic approach to nuclear threat communication. Alex, thanks so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks for having me, Scott. Just to remind everybody, you can get your questions in, just put them in the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster, or if you'd like to go old school, and some people do, you can email me questions in our conversation. Just be sure to send them to sgk23 at Drexel 
www.ucc.edu. So Alex, I'll start the way I usually do just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. I'm in Hoboken, New Jersey. So as my little virtual background shows, we are just across the river from uh, Manhattan. And, um, you know, this was a hot spot in March and like many parts of the New York and New Jersey area uh, adopted many of the the measures to prevent the spread of this very early on. Um, most of those are still ongoing, um, though we've done very well in uh, Hoboken and Hudson County. Hoboken has done better uh, with COVID-19 than many of the cities around it. Um, if you're a fan of the mayor, you attribute that to his very rapid activity, which was somewhat ahead of the rest of the state. And if you are not a fan of the mayor, you make up some kind of explanation. But um, uh, things are, you know, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to know what to say, but uh, you wear a mask when you go outside. The mask wearing is very high, though they're just starting to open up the possibility of indoor dining in lower percentages. And uh, most of the people I know are not indulging in that. I'm not sure who is, but there are people who are. But the uh, college professor college professor social set is more or less treating it like uh, you still should stay inside. <laughs> and, you know, Hoboken is such an interesting place in that you're you're in New Jersey, but you're looking at New York City. So it falls across kind of jurisdictions, both municipal as well as state jurisdictions. Did the Cuomo administration in those early days approach this very differently from the way that Phil Murphy did in New Jersey? My sense, and I have to admit, during the very early days, I mostly just hid from everything and was not, I found the the day-to-day -to -day too stressful. Yeah. Uh, but my sense was that uh, Murphy was a little bit ahead on certain things like shutting down schools and things like that. Um, and then in Hoboken, our mayor was a little bit ahead of Murphy. So we were doing certain things before a lot of other places and felt kind of like a canary in the coal mine at times because we would suddenly have a thing where they would shut down all parks and people would say, oh my God, how can they do that? And then they would shut down all parks in the whole state or something like this, or they would shut down movie theaters. We would do kind of that stuff maybe three or four days before everything else. And it felt, uh, the experience of it was was this, on the one hand, a little reassuring because you got the feeling that people were trying to do something. Um, and at the same time, as it ramped up more and more severe actions, uh, you kept wondering, of course, what was next. I spent a lot of the pandemic actually uh, we, we, the pandemics basically hit around the time of my spring break. And so we went to, my wife and I wanted to just take a few days, uh, to get out of town. So we went to an Airbnb down at a very quiet part of the Jersey shores off season and ended up staying there for three months. And, uh, wow. just to, you know, we live in very, Hoboken's something like the fifth highest population density city in the country, very small, one square mile, but 50,000 people. And so you cannot avoid other people in the elevator. Right. And so we just wanted to go to a much smaller place. And so, yeah, we lived in Ventnor City for three months, wow. uh, which also helped. We're both teachers. So we had the remote teaching thing going on. And uh, we were living in a one-bedroom apartment at the time. And you really, it's, it's, you can't have two remote teachers in a one-bedroom apartment very effectively. So the Airbnb was much larger. And uh, so anyway, it's been a very strange year. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have that uncanny experience? I mean, you're you keep an eye on 
on disasters of all kinds. And I know you were watching this, I'm sure, early on. Did you have that uncanny experience that when you said spring break comes, so you say goodbye to your students, and the next thing you know, you're in the Jersey Shore. You go from this intensely dense environment to being at the beach with a very light population. It seems like such a jarring disconnect. I had that same sort of experience. I'm in Philadelphia, in and out of Philadelphia constantly. The next thing I know, I'm in my upstairs front bedroom all the time. And it's just, it was so jarring, particularly for that first month, that disconnect. Yeah. I actually found the, dis the, the, the change of scene very psychologically helpful because for me, it was, I was able to chalk up a lot of the disruption to my daily life to, well, we're out of town. So all of my habits, I mean, I still haven't restored my habits, of course, since before March. I haven't been in the Manhattan since March. And I used to go to Manhattan once, sometimes twice a week, just to do work and the, do meetings. And I haven't had an in-person meeting and who knows, right? And uh, and I think normally I would find that that sudden disruption of habits very strange. But when I was in a different place, my brain went into, well, of course you don't do your normal stuff. You're at the beach. That's a different type of of life, and unless anybody get too too jealous, the beaches were cold and then closed, so we weren't like actually at the beach. We were yeah, just no, in understand. a low density place where you could get an off season Airbnb very cheaply. Uh, we did walk on the beach a bit. The dog liked that, but uh, uh, I actually found it good. And we actually moved in July, even though that's probably not you know we felt like we were taking some risks to do it to get to a, a larger apartment because we just couldn't be in this tiny space that normally was perfect, but it. Our tiny apartment was predicated on the idea that we'd spend 80% of the time outside of it. And when that stopped being the case, that was very taxing. So for us, the the uh, all of the dislocations have actually been, I think, a little easier because they in some ways don't highlight how changed everything became. They, they sort of impose an artificial external change, which made all the other changes seem more natural. But that's my take on it. So I, I didn't mind it, though. Of course, it was surreal. The, the, the joke I made with people was that, I mean, we, we were supposed to spend spring break in Ukraine. Uh, uh, this, oh, this were you like, on your way to Chernobyl? We were on the way to Chernobyl. We were supposed to do this. And this whole, that trip, of course, fell apart basically the week before, you know, this was basically when everything started really shutting down. And so yeah. we canceled the trip and said, we're not going to fly international. I don't know if we'll be able to get back. And, you know, we didn't know what the situation in Ukraine was like. But then we went to the Jersey Shore, which was all shut down and abandoned. And so it was sort of like Chernobyl, you know, at home yeah. for us. Uh for people who don't do the kind of work we do, this conversation is going to sound a little weird. I mean, I was ramping up to take <laughs> students to Hiroshima in August and we were gonna to go to Fukushima and that trip got shelved for the same for the same reason. So all these sort of distant nuclear and radioactive <laughs> history spots. And it's this is interesting to me that we're having this converse, part of this conversation because what it felt like to me in the first month of the pandemic, and I should say, I'm a caveat, people know, I'm not an essential worker. I wasn't treating patients. I mean, I was one of the people who was in lockdown and teaching online, was that it felt the way I had seen Cold War era descriptions of what the post-attack environment would be like for people <laughs> who had not been in the city that was destroyed, but who were in the city next door, that we were inside, we were sheltering, and that something bad had happened close by. That's what it felt like to me. And it's, that's what it sounds like your Ventnor experience is a was a little bit like. 
yeah, it was like we'd 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 fled, and uh, no. and we felt guilty about that, of course, because we had the resources to do that. We don't have children, so the dislocation is not a big deal. Uh, uh, and we're not, we didn't fled to our, you know, we fled to an Airbnb to be sure. We didn't flee to our magisterial second house or anything like that. We don't have that kind of resources, but we did have the resources that we could leave town for three months and that wasn't really that big of a deal. Um, and our jobs continued the whole time. So we felt right. very fortunate to be able to do all these things. But uh, yeah, it was very surreal. And it was also surreal, and I'm sure you experienced this and other people we've talked to, um, because New York and New Jersey were sort of the, the one of the big epicenters other than what like portland and all that and because things got so bad and you started getting these reports of the refrigerated corpses and all of this kind of stuff yeah, um you it really hit very close to home and you felt you took this very seriously but then you, we would go places or talk to family who lived in say california and like it was clear that things hadn't really gotten to them yet and they were saying things like well i don't know maybe we should do this and we're saying things like we're not we don't go anywhere. <laughs> we don't leave the house. <laughs> we yeah. walk the dog around the block a few times, but we don't. And uh, it was very odd watching the sort of rest of the country get pulled into that mindset when we were, you know, several weeks ahead of them. Very surreal time. Very stressful, of course. Absolutely. Uh, yesterday, I got. I have not talked with many physicians, but I talked with two yesterday: Chris Strawn and Bonnie Rowett in Dallas, and they talked about that experience because they didn't hit the peak until July. And mm -hmm. just watching the statistics, the medical reports coming in and just the waiting. And guess what? It was when it came to them in their month of July was as terrible as they had thought it was going to be. You know, they weren't buying. They didn't buy themselves a lot with that extra time because they were in Texas, unfortunately. Um, I was thinking what you were saying about feeling like you were in the Cold War novel and uh, or the Cold War sort of post-apocalyptic period. And for me, I spent a lot of time uh, I've taught. A course on the end of the world in which we've gone through all of the different sort of existential scenarios that scholars take seriously including nuclear weapons but including pandemics and all of these sorts of things and uh i, I have a rather i don't know pessimistic view of things anyway but uh as this stuff started happening i started thinking not so much that it's the end of civilization but very early on when the first reports of this virus being in china i was very on the like is this going to be a problem uh, is is this going to be a uh, an issue? And I was watching the epidemiologists on Twitter arguing about this. Some of them saying, "Oh my God, this is a huge thing that's going to be everywhere," and others saying, "No, no, there's no time to panic." And and uh, so when it happened, I was sort of ready to let's get out of dodge. I am not. I don't want to play with this. I want to. Uh, I'd rather be uh, overreact in that respect than underreact, if that's the case. Uh, Absolutely. Let me just remind folks that uh, you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Alex Wellerstein today. So, um, Alex, let me turn, you know, I've thought about your work a lot. I first got to know your work through the Nuke Map project. And I know that you're a person who's spent a lot of time, as you just said, thinking about grim scenarios, but you've gone more than just think about it. You've developed tools that allow people to model those scenarios. And so you're deeply aware of and conversant in the way that 
um, apocalyptic scenarios have been created at various times, particularly in the Cold War. And then you've uh, thought about how to visualize those. So I want to turn to Nuke Map in a minute, but starting just starting out, you know, it struck me, uh, and I read the statistics from the, the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center every COVID calls. We are swimming in data. We are all just, there's so much data coming in constantly. We're trying to parse it. Can you just talk to us a little bit about how how you have been taking in the pandemic data, the visualizations that you've seen, what do you think has been effective, what's less effective? Just give us, as a real expert in this, give us a little bit of a tour of the data visualization landscape. Sure, I mean, it's it's kind of a perfect storm for data visualization in some ways. Uh, the tools for doing data visualization of this sort, which is to say off uh, geospatial kinds of, visualizations, um, they got really easy to do maybe 10 years ago. Um, before that, you could do them, but it was a lot harder. And what, what I mean by a lot harder is you'd have to use a tool like, uh, you'd have to be using GIS essentially, or you'd have to be a professional graphic designer or data analyst or something like this. And uh, around, I don't know exactly what year it is, but I started to really notice this stuff around 2013, 2014, 2015, that sort of thing. Um, maybe it's not, maybe it's only five years ago, 10 years ago. Um, uh, th there, there came to be JavaScript libraries that allowed you to do things a lot easier. And just to explain it, because sometimes I say something like a JavaScript API and people say, what, what are you talking about? This techno mumble jumbo. Uh, all this is, is JavaScript is the computer line, is the language that your web browser uses to do computer stuff with. And a, a library or an API is just code that somebody else has made so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And so with some of these libraries, one of the ones I use when I teach is called D3, and it's one of these common ones. And uh, D3 is a library, it's, it's basically a, a language subset of JavaScript, it's built on JavaScript, where you can say, I have a bunch of data, and it can be in different formats, but basically you just, get the data into D3 one way or the other. Could be numbers, could be uh, uh, counties, it could be all sorts of different types of, of, of data. And then you say, I want you to take that data and make it on a map. And you don't have to use maps, but D3 does is, is kind of magical with maps. Because you can say, I want it to be this kind of map at this projection, and I want you to instantly know exactly where on the map and in this projection, every little latitude and longitude is supposed to go, or every county is supposed to go. That's the stuff that typically can be quite difficult, and D3 makes it really simple. And then basically, D3 translate that into those slick graphs that you've seen. Now, I don't know if the Johns Hopkins ones is actually using D3 or not, but it's exactly the kind of thing D3 does. There's a few other libraries that do this, where you can say, show me a map of the world, color it this way, highlight these countries versus those countries, and now take all this spatial data of where things go and put a circle on each one of those. And now scale the radius of the circle to right. some other value. And now make it so that if I zoom this thing dynamically, things are moving around. And I actually think they're using Esri now that I'm thinking about it. Same sort of deal, different kind of API, doesn't really matter. That technology didn't really exist more than 10 years ago or so, I'd say. Uh, and 
the, that means that the bar was fairly high to make these kinds of visualizations. Mm. Today, the bar isn't high. So I can teach students, I can teach undergraduates, some of whom have surprisingly little computer experience for engineering school students. Uh, I can teach them over a semester how to do this, which is to say that it's not, it's not something you need a degree in anymore to sort of do, and it's not specialized software. It's sort of learning a, sp a specific sort of language, which is free and on the internet and things like that. All of which is to say is it's now, I can, somebody like me who's now been doing this for a little bit can take a raw data stream and make a, a slick looking visualization in maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes and make it an interactive one that you can zoom in on and click on a dot to get the raw information and make it so that each dot now is also shaded by color. So you're showing like multivariate kinds of visualizations. And the dangerous part about all this, and this is why I mean the perfect right. storm, is it's, it's really easy to do this without a deep understanding of data or data visualization. <laughs> and so you'll find a million attempts at the moment of people to, to visualize this data. And that's the thing to me that's been really interesting is the proliferation in which everybody who does any kind of dabbling in data viz has now got all the data and is now trying to find some creative, cool way to do it. And sometimes those are extremely misleading. Sometimes they're subtly misleading. Um, sometimes they're revelatory. Uh, but uh, the sheer amount of it is, I think, the interesting part to me. Well, I mean, there's, there's just some of the ones that um, are out there and get a lot of circulation. Obviously, the Johns Hopkins one I mentioned, 91 Divac, CDC has its COVID net, the COVID visualizer, and then individual newspapers and different news organizations have some of them are sort of a long standing and then the times keeps springing like new ones to illustrate very specific stories and sometimes i mean you can still find them but they maybe they're not updated after a particular period of time so like i said it's hard to you know i kind of latched onto the hopkins one early on because it's continually updated and you can apprehend different different scales pretty easily but i noticed that it had me, there's a tension in it that had me focused on something that I didn't want to really focus on, which is that it's a global pandemic, but it's absolutely focused on national level statistics. Maybe that's the nature of the beast with the pandemic and with, with epidemiological reporting, but that visualization misses really important problems, flows of people, flows of capital, lack of flows of people, lockdown statistics, uh, detention centers, the many other nuances of this pandemic that uh, are really important than maybe knowing how many cases are in Spain versus how many cases are in Sweden versus Hawaii or, or California. Can you talk a little bit about, you said there's some, if it, since it's easy to do, maybe it sure. creates some problems or some things are missed, some of the nuances get painted over. I'd like to know what you mean by that. Sure. Well, I mean, one one clear thing with this is, of course, one of the issues that I, I know you're aware of, and anybody listening to this is aware of, is is the like the even this, the question of how many cases are there requires you to differentiate between you're talking about positive cases that have actually been diagnosed versus adjustments that have been made with the positive versus the case rating to estimate how many are out there in the population. So the visualization can hide these kinds of data issues. If they're only going, for example, I don't know how Johns Hopkins does it, but if they're only going by reported cases, of course, in, in some places, that's going to be a lot lower than the actual cases. But if the visualization right. doesn't have some way of showing that, that's a problem. The kinds of visual things I think about and I talk to my classes about, um, 
for example, with the Johns Hopkins ones, if you go to the global map, I've just got it open in the other window while I'm, mm -hmm. so I don't look like I'm making eye contact, that's why. Um, the way that they use the dots, right? That's the that's a sort of, I think of this as the circles on a map map, right? Which is the right. easiest one to do for certain types of data. Any data that's by city or anything with latitudes and longitudes, this is the easiest default thing to do. And they're doing, I mean, they're showing a lot of data on this. And what I like to show the students is the difference you get intuitively from something like this when you're zoomed out far from when you zoom at different scales in. Because when you're zoomed out far, those scale, those circles are almost are, are drawn to very similar scales at every level of zoom. And so when you're out far, it looks like the United States is the wash of red, right? And you're just, you know, and also the color choices are interesting as well, right? Of course, this right. is not meant to be a calming map and it shouldn't be, but I mean, that's very deliberately chosen sort of, let's get the high contrast, scary color choice, like make it look like blood on, on coal or something it does. like that. Yeah, absolutely, right? yeah. If you zoom all the way in though, let's say you zoom into, you know, from an, and from an angle, when you're zoomed out, you know, of course, New Jersey still and New York still have a bunch. The further you go in though, because the dots are not proportionally scaling, the less of an issue it looks like because the dots are now these tiny things surrounded by these oceans of landmass. And that's an avoidable, you can actually avoid that if you want to, if you program it to do it, you can make the dots scaling at some proportional level. Though at some level you have to ask yourself as the designer, what's the correct answer, right? Is the world a wash of red or is it pockets of red that have a lot of space in between them? Yeah. And that's not a, that's both a visual question and a data question. And I'm not sure I feel conversant enough to data to know what feels right in that respect. But this is the kind of thing where a very subtle choice, if you make it, cause it's not visualizing raw numbers. You, you've got a function in there that says if there's a thousand cases, uh, you know, make the radius of the circle five pixels or something like that. Um, you can adjust that function, but even then you could make a thousand cases be a thousand pixels and it'll take over your whole monitor or you could make it be one pixel and it'll look like nothing. These are the kind of design choices that go into making these. And you know the old truism that the data doesn't actually read itself. It, 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 there's design decisions and you have to be very careful about this. And I'm not criticizing the Johns Hopkins ones. I assume they're, they're smart people, but these are, you can you can even with their map at these different scales take away very different impressions. The other one that they use a, a lot, the U.S. map, that's what they call a choropleth map. That's when you like shade in shapes. So mm -hmm. for theirs, they're shading in counties, right? They're giving county level data, and that gives you a really different impression. In part because counties are not actually the size of like the number of people in the county, right? right? And so this is the the, the sort of issue with the choropleth map usually, and you see this often in coverage of, you know, election data right. in particular, is that it it can amplify, it can turn sort of area into yeah. a bigger deal than it ought to, so that a sort of low population but large county stands out a lot more than like Hudson County where I live, which is just like tiny, tiny little county that has a huge number of people living in it and things like right. that. And there are ways to get around that where you can distort the counties by size, though even I sort of sometimes wonder what the value of that is at some level, because in doing that kind of transformation, you lose things, which is not to say that these are bad approaches. I think you, we, we, we have to deal, every visualization is going to have ups and downs. That, that's all, there's always going to have some distortions. 
and can possibly give bad impressions. But these are some of the issues that come up when I look at these things. And there's other sort of even more fundamental issues, like when you use circles where you're scaling a radius, people are really bad at estimating area by radius. So that's actually, you can kind of get a good intuitive sometimes, and sometimes it's very hard to tell. And, and like the classic easy example of this, um, most people, if I asked you what gives you more pizza, one 18-inch pizza or two 12-inch pizzas, you know, the cumulative part of your brain says 12 plus 12 is 24, that's better. It's actually 80% smaller than an 18-inch pizza, uh, uh, excuse me, 20% smaller. And this is just because our brains are not super good at estimating areas. And this is one of the reasons why data viz people usually say don't use pie charts, don't use things that scale by area in general. Scaling by line is good. We're very good at judging heights of bars. We're very bad at judging relative magnitudes of circles and squares and things. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but these are the kinds of design questions that you have to ask. Uh, you know, if your goal is to maximize understanding, you have to think about what the understanding is you're trying to get across. And so there is kind of a chicken and egg problem in here too with this. Yeah. That's, you know, that, thank you for going into that detail on the, the actual sort of dynamics of how, you know, some of the problems you can run into and, and where you just finished with that is, is so crucial to me because, you know, if you think about the early days of the pandemic in the United States, so let's say February into March, and it was, it was being talked about as a national story, but the reality is it was a very local story and you know a lot of the data visualization was telling national narratives and i think the political rhetoric trump notwithstanding it was being discussed as a sort of a national you know threat i point to maybe not by him but certainly by people in, in public health and emergency management but pretty quickly the reporting i mean by april the reporting in major news outlets was starting to focus on the unequal distribution of impacts so not only unequal geographically so by population density but also inequalities within those densities racial socioeconomic indigenous populations essential worker populations that's a harder story to tell with these kind of off-the-shelf visualization tools that you're talking about, but have you have you seen visualizations that maybe not even with this pandemic, but in other cases that attempt to take on those harder kinds of of narratives, those car harder kinds of stories? Because I think the consensus by April and May, the people who've been following this, is that to talk about a national pandemic is or a global pandemic and the epidemic aspect of it in the United States. It's not very helpful. It's very different in Florida from what's happening in California and New Jersey, and it's pretty different in Iowa too. But I wonder how that, you know, back to these problems you were talking about, how do we bring that to the map? I mean, there are some things that the map isn't the best way to do it, right? There's somewhere, say, a uh, the the bar charts, are, for example, or things that show projections are uh, better ways to do it, and. You know, the other type of visualization you see a, maybe as much as the map is, is the ubiquitous little bar chart, right? The ubiquitous, and the New York Times uses what are called spark lines a lot, which are, this is an Edward Tufte idea. He was one of the big graphic designer types. Uh, uh, and these are those little tiny, it's in, with no numbers shown. 
right? It's like a little tiny thing with a little arrow at the end showing you the magnitude. And they love this on their website. They're always showing you, you know, here's a bunch of counties and here's a bunch of this and here's a bunch of that. Mm -hmm. Right. And those have their advantage in that they do show you trends uh, dispersed around, though without the magnitude, that can also be a little bit misleading because, of course, you know, if some state that has two cases goes to five cases, that's a huge magnitude on that kind of scale, though the actual number of cases is relatively low. I think the tricky thing here for something like a pandemic is that the nature of the 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 data, the nature of the growth is exponential. And so just because you have small number of cases today, there's my doorbell. Sorry about, okay, there you go. Sorry, my dog just got back from daycare. So that's good. Uh, yeah, he's, he'll be a tired good boy. Um, the, the nature of exponential growth, and, and I, I mean, amusingly, I'm not an epidemiologist at all, and I don't want to sound like one, but we do a lot with exponential growth and nuclear weapons stuff. And so this is something that I, I feel a little close to my heart because this is how a nuclear reaction right. works also is the exponential growth. Um, but you can start with very small number of cases. But if you have any kind of doubling at any pace, of course, you get ridiculous ones. And, and my favorite one, and this is what I use not for illustrating illness, illness at all, but for, uh, you know, nuclear fission reactions, right, is the famous, uh, the, the, the famous fable of the, uh, the, the wise men and the chessboard or whatever, where the king likes some wise men for some reason and says, can I give you gold? And he says, no, I'll just take like one piece of rice on a chessboard. And then you double it, give me two pieces on the second piece. And then you give me four on the third piece. And you just go down the chessboard and I'll be fine. And you do the math. And by the time you're at the end of the chessboard, that's more rice than exists in the entire universe, right? Because <laughs> right. exponentials rise really fast. Right. And they start so slow right. and they're not that impressive. And then you say we had 30 cases and then you turn around and it's 500 and then you turn around and it's 2000 and then you turn around and it's 100,000. And so on that level, I'm sympathetic with attempts to say, look, I get that it's only in these places at the moment, but you either have to believe it's never going to spread and that's not going to do exponential growth like we see there. Uh, and otherwise you should be watching every little variation, even though that could be tricky too, because there's random variation and you know, right. there's all sorts of little things. But these are some of the things I think about when I look at all of these, I, I'm always at a war with myself. I don't wanna make it sound like I think there's some easy answer because part of me will say, they ought to show the magnitude of these spark lines because some of them are nothing and some of them are a big deal. And then part of me also says, yes, but the absolute magnitude is misleading if you've got exponential growth, because then what really is gonna matter is the exponential growth factor, and, right. because that's gonna tell you what the exponent, what the magnitude's gonna be in like a week or something like that. And I'm not sure I've seen things that do a perfect job of doing all of this. My, my general disposition is to say, look at a lot of visualizations, uh, and, and look at a lot of different ways of thinking about this uh, because no one of them is actually gonna reveal something that's kind of complex like this. I, I mean, I know as a historian, you're gonna have uh, a disinclination to talk about human cognitive capacity as some sort of free floating <laughs> thing. But there was, a, there was several articles in April particularly talking about, there was a kind of a micro literature that popped up right there that said, you know, this is a moment also when we can be thinking about climate change. And there were some articles that came in at that moment that said something to this effect, which is that one of the reasons we've had trouble getting our mind around climate change is it's exponential growth, exp right. uh, you know, of uh, chemicals in the atmosphere, carbon in the atmosphere and impacts. And we're not wired cognitively to think of numbers in that way. And that discussion was playing out over here 
while there were epidemiologists who were saying, I know it looks like small numbers because we're in the low level of the exponential growth right now, but come back to us in May and it's going to be something that you don't want to comprehend. It, is that correct? Do we have cognitive bias against exponential thinking? I certainly do. I mean, I don't want to speak yeah. for all people. I, I yeah, find I these too. things hard to think of. There, there are facts about exponentials that I, I mean, and I'm sure anybody who's more mathematically trained than me will think, my God, Professor Wellerstein, this is like the most obvious thing about exponentials. But for me, I find them interesting and worth emphasizing. But for example, if you've got something like that, where the it's growing by a doubling function, right? Just like the two leads to the four leads to the eight. That like something like most of the numbers that you will total you will end up with are going to be in the last couple of generations, right? And so in a nuclear explosion, for example, you might start with one neutron that splits an atom and gets you two neutrons, which splits you two more, et cetera, et cetera. By the time you get to 64 generations, you've got like a trillion trillion neutrons. And most of those neutrons are in the last like three generations or so. Um, all that other stuff is just building you up for these gigantic energy releases. And that's the stuff that's very hard to wrap your head around, right? Uh, yeah, I think that there is a problem with this. I think there's two problems. I think I think one is we're not good at risk in general. And we, we're very bad at these kinds of uncertain risks. And that's not a new thing for anybody to say. That's like, you know, the, the totemic risk studies stuff to say. Uh, we're very bad at novel things. We're very bad at risks where we don't know the dimensions, things where we have to change our habits really dramatically, things that we're not even sure how it kills you, all that kind of stuff. We, we don't like the, what's called, Slovak call them the dread risks and, and the unknowns right. and things like that. Um, and we also are not very good at thinking about exponentials and spread and things of that nature. And I found that even, I, I occasionally argue with people on the internet, I mean, who doesn't, right? And occasionally I find myself like almost trying to explain to it like people, like, like they're, like there's students in my class where I'm like, no, this is, yeah. if, you know, the number, the problem isn't, and, and sometimes people, by the way, go the other direction. They'll say like, okay, we've got low numbers now. This is a situation when people who talk about this on the Hoboken message boards and things. Like we have pretty low numbers in Hoboken right now, but we're still being pretty cautious, right? And some people will say, oh, we got to reopen everything. It's dumb. There's not that many people saying that around here because we take it pretty seriously in this area. We saw sort of what it did. Um, but you have some other people saying we can't open anything until those zero cases whatsoever. And you can say, well, that's not going to probably happen anytime ever. Uh, you know, this, you're not going to probably eradicate this from that. That's very hard to do. Uh, uh, but it's not even really the goal. The goal is not to keep the cases to zero. The goal is to keep it from exponential growth. So that if you do get a couple cases, you get the transmissibility yeah. so low that it stays at a couple cases and then eventually goes away as opposed to rises in this literally steep thing. And so that's almost flipping the other direction. Uh, uh, all of this is hard to make sense of. It's hard for me to make sense of. And I study some of these things and I, I don't know how, here's a question I'll, I'll throw back at you here. There you go. Reversal, uh, uh, you know. To what degree can this be something that you rely on? You know, democratic participation versus rule by expertise. And I know this is one of the great tensions at the moment. But if these things are very hard to understand, even for people who have PhDs and have studied these types of things for a long time, and are very hard to communicate, where does that get you in terms of so, uh, social action? Mm -hmm. What do you think, Scott? <laughs> well, I, I mean, that's. I'm glad your question didn't have any math in it. First of all, but I, 
<laughs> I think that tension is 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 so palpable throughout this entire time. And it, and one of the reasons and one of the places I look for it most is actually in public health, which is one of the mm -hmm. more sort of democratic expertise skill sets. That is, it's a skill set, but it's inherently about people. It's inherently about groups of people. And if it's operating in democracy, so let's limit it here to let's talk about the United States. Um, you know, back to this, this, the problem you were just outlining. Public health officials have tried to, have been charged with simultaneously warning people of exponential growth of a virus that is transmitted in ways we didn't fully understand in February and March. And then they've been charged with telling people, okay, now at a certain point, we're gonna tell you it's okay to come back outside. And we need you to trust us in both instances. Now, why are we surprised that we get this wildly variant set of, even among people who trust experts, and I gotta count myself at the front of that class, um, don't always know how to act. Don't always know if it's okay to go outside. I was very slow going to the grocery store and things like that. I mean, we were, you know, buying large quantities of things to last long so we didn't have to do that. You know, later talking to folks, they said, nah, probably that was okay. You know, particularly what you should have been looking at is the case rate in your town. Um, and just to your, to your point, you know, that once exponential growth is no longer the dominant concern, there are other things that I should have been worried about, right? Um, and I think public health has been right in the crosshairs of that, of that kind of discussion. Um, the, of course, extreme examples of that are ones we have seen with the anti-mask, you know, fights that have gone on. And I suppose what's coming, which is a war in the streets of the United States about vaccine. Hopefully not literal war in the streets, though. I worry about that a bit myself no, as well. Not. Well, <laughs> let me, uh, let's, let's. Let's let me shift a little bit. I should have asked you about this earlier, but um, but it's kind of been the background of our conversation. So one of the other the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, of course, is you spent so much time with this nuke map pro project and thinking about historical antecedents of where we find ourselves now and trying to do these kind of visualizations and this kind of thinking. Why did you start nuke map? What is it? And what have it's popular? Why have people gravitated towards it and used it? Uh, NukeMap is a tool for visualizing the effect of a nuclear detonation. And so when you go to the website, it basically, first it tries to figure out where you are, which is, and then tries to pick the nearest big city near to you. Uh, that might be a plausible target. And then it basically it invites you to choose a nuclear weapon. And once you've done that, you hit a big red button that says detonate, and it will show you the radii of the different effects from the nuclear weapon. And if you there's a little box for you can make it calculate uh, casualties as well. It'll come up with an estimate of how many that that particular detonation that you set off of that bomb in that place, how many people would have died. And there's other options. You can turn on the radioactive fallout and, and you can even make it say under the present wind conditions, what kind of contamination would there be? And you can also do there's all sorts of little advanced features that I'm very proud of in there that like you can you can use a little tool called the probe to say if I was here and the weapon went off here, what would the effects be 
at exactly that point. And it'll even tell you, this is a new, relatively new addition, it'll tell you how much radiation you'd get from staying inside all day versus going outside versus being in your car versus being in a basement and, and give you your health effects. So it'll say the odds are you'll, you know, you'd increase your cancer risk by 2% in this situation, or you're going to die within three weeks or something like that. Really fun stuff for the whole family. And, uh, uh, Anyway, I started this, I made this in uh, the, the very first version, which did not have any of these, as many bells and whistles in um, 2012. So it's been a little while. Mm -hmm. um, and I did this, uh, I had originally written this code for this kind of thing because I'm terrible at visualizing numbers. I'm not very good at, if you tell me this thing has a blast radius of two miles versus this one has a blast radius of 15 miles. In my head, I have a very hard time seeing the different magnitude, even though that's an incredibly different uh, amount of area that's going to be between those two things. And uh, so for me, the, the easiest way is to draw that kind of thing on a map. And this is a time-tested visualization for nuclear weapons. This goes back literally to uh, uh, Hiroshima. They mm -hmm. drew those kinds of diagrams for showing the damage at Hiroshima. And immediately, like the day after, Americans started drawing diagrams saying, what if it had happened here with that kind of thing in their own city? So I'm sort of borrowing from the historical idiom. Um, as for the specific circumstances, I was doing some other work with mapping. And I realized that at this point in time, in 2012, it was extremely easy to draw circles on a Google map with code. You could basically, there's a function that says make a circle and make the radius like this and make the color orange or something along those lines. And I'm simplifying it a little bit, but it's not really that much more complicated. And that was not that easy when I had originally sort of been started studying this and written code on this. Uh, the very first version of NukeMap, which nobody ever saw, which my internal use was, was made with like MapQuest. I mean, it's very, you know, old school, right? right. And that, that kind of stuff doesn't encourage modification. Uh, so anyway, I made a version that you could draw circles on. I already had some of the equations. I put it on the internet. I gave it, I sent it to some friends. I think it had some name like Alex's Amazing Nuclear Weapons Simulator. And one of my good colleagues, I was at the American Institute of Physics at the time, said, That's, this is kind of a cool site. It has a terrible name. So I renamed it NukeMap. Um, I put it on the internet and it got more popular than I expected. Uh, uh, the, the real story, this is just an amusing story. Uh, I put it on the internet and it got used by, I don't know, 20,000 people within a week or two. And I said, oh, that's that's pretty exciting for an academic, right? 20,000 eyes, that's sure. huge, right? Uh, I think my, my article, you know, my, my first peer reviewed article was read by a total of like six people. So this is very exciting, right? So I wrote a little blog post about how, wow, this is amazing, great. And then um, it got picked up by uh, uh, UK tabloids who wrote stories about how everybody had used this website, which was a lie, it was a total lie, but it made it true. And so that sort of catapulted it into this like millions of people. Now it's been used by 30 million people. I've updated it and added to it and, and made it sort of my, uh, you know, a major component of my scholarship. But, um, but what it's really for in the end of the day is to help people understand what kind of a threat a nuclear weapon is. Right. And to help them understand in part, not just the circles of doom and death, right? But to understand that the answer to the question of what would happen if a nuclear weapon went off, there isn't a single answer to that. You need to drill down because it's what kind of weapon? Where is it going off? It's a tool to make people without being didactic. It never 
tells them how to think about this, but it gets them to sort of see that this is a bit more complicated than they probably initially imagined, but also give them a sort of relatively easy answer. You can see very quickly that a bomb of the like Hiroshima variety would take out the downtown area of Manhattan, which would be awful, and you can get the casualty count and see how many hundreds of thousands you'd kill with that. But you know, the rest of the boroughs and, and Hoboken and other places would be relatively unscathed. Whereas a 10 megaton bomb destroys the entire metro area of New York, all five boroughs and a lot of New Jersey and things. And that's the kind of intuitive understanding that is not easy to necessarily convey with words and numbers, but with an image is extremely easy. It's interesting that, you know, I mean, early in the Cold War, those kinds of images with the, with the radius laid over a city appeared both in documents that were top secret, mm -hmm. but also on the front pages of newspapers across America. And Office of Civil Defense, I believe, when they mobilized those kind of images, they were trying to inspire people to take civil defense measures seriously. Mm -hmm. And I suppose they were trying to encourage political support for the instruction of the nuclear complex and the nuclear stockpile. Anti-nuclear act activists also latched onto those images. Mm -hmm. Right. So the same image inspired different sort of politics and and rhetorics. But but you're pretty clear that your goal with this. Well, I mean, you didn't say it ex explicitly, but what is the, the larger goal is to make people aware of the impact of nuclear weapons. But to what end? So I have my own politics and they're complicated and they're not, I mean, it'd be a whole other show. And, and, and what I mean by they're complicated is that they don't fall easily into the like standard camps of nukes are great or nukes are terrible, right? It, it, it's the kind of boring scholarly moderate opinion of the, when you spend too much time talking to people on, on different positions. And, you know, my, my goal, of, I mean, the end goal is please don't set any more nuclear weapons off on anybody's right. cities, but like everybody shares that goal, right? It's a question yeah. how you get to wow. that goal, right? Yeah. Most everybody, yeah. <laughs> everybody, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but the nuke map isn't meant to instill as particular politics in whoever reads it. And I actually believe about nuclear weapons in general, I believe that they are inherently political, but that the specific politics, there's a lot of potential options. You, you, you end up necessarily having political implications with something like this, but exactly where you go, there's sort of a wide set of possibilities within the range of sure. what we might call politics. And for me, the important thing about the nuke map is that it doesn't graft onto a single set of politics. So it's used by scholars who have diametrically different views of nuclear weapons, right? So there are some scholars who think that nuclear weapons are not really that big a deal and we could use very small ones and certain limited you know, strikes against military installations. And they've used the nuke map to show, oh, it would only kill, you know, 50 Chinese soldiers. So we should think that this is an option, which I don't agree with personally, but I can, because there's you know, a larger com context to that kind of activity. Um, but I can see that they, you know, I, I, I take a little happiness in the fact that they find my tool a useful way to make that kind of argument, even if I think the argument's dangerous and scary. On the other hand, you have people, of course, using it to show that nuclear weapons are really destructive and really awful and you should never use them and things like that. Um, I've had them in, in popular usage. I've had the nuke map cited by, uh, you know, 
places I would more or less agree with politically and places that I find abhorrent politically. Uh, I, I don't want to put my politics on the table, but they've been, it's been sure. cited by Breitbart and Newt Gingrich. And I'm just like, I don't know, man, that's, that's not me really. But to me, it's important that even if we're going to have different political takeaways, that there is some sort of um, consensus on what we're talking about. Right. And for nuclear weapons, the tricky part is that most people don't have a firm sense of what they really do and are. Of course, they're destructive. Everybody knows that part. But for most people, the idea of like a single nuclear weapon going off is the whole world is toast, fade to white, end of the movie. And uh, that is that sort of hyper exaggerated version of a nuclear weapon doesn't actually get you to a useful form of politics in my mind. Right. So uh, so these are the sort of tensions I'm always dealing with with this. And I deliberately make the nuke map very bland. I mean, my data visualization on there, I have the students deconstruct like what it's meant to look like. And it's it's meant to look boring. It's in Helvetica. It's got gray. I had somebody describe it the other day as looking old school, which it didn't look yeah. old school and I made it. Yeah. But like, yeah. yes, yes. I. Yeah. But yeah. that's all very deliberate so that you're not, you know, and I always joke with them, how different would you read the data if it had a giant American flag on the top? Yeah, sure. Or if it had like, you know, a big peace symbol on the side, you you would be disinclined to uh, uh, take it as seriously in some ways. So it's really interesting how you know you and I, we've had multiple discussions about nuke map over the years, and um, the thing that just struck me as you were talking is that this is the first time that the notion of having a clear way to look at the data is itself potentially politically fraught. For sure. And I think that's the core of this. That's the baseline of this, you know, which is a, a supposition that we haven't put on the table much. We have, certainly. There have been time, you know, fake news in, in debates around what counts as a fact in science is that it's not the first time we've ever seen this. But um, the idea that somebody might look at NukeMap and say, you know, actually nuclear weapons don't kill people or, you know, nuclear weapons don't even exist. I don't even know why this guy is making this thing. That might have seemed like a outlandish sort of things to assume two years ago. I don't imagine they are now. Imagine there's denialism about nuclear oh, yeah. weapons, just like there is about climate change and about, about COVID-19, right? And there has been for a little while. They're amusingly the, 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 the nuclear weapon denialists are treated like most members of the cons other conspiracy theorists think they're nuts, which I find really amusing for the most part. Like they're, it's almost like the ultimately ultimate conspiracy is to think that all nuclear weapons have never existed. We, that's a whole other discussion we could have about these denialists. They're they're a very strange group, and they are a weird mixture. And I guess it's it's not unlike some of the COVID denialism and global warming denialism. They, they have some sort of technical assumptions that they latch onto as the sort of thing that makes this not just nuts, right? So for them, it has to do with the probability of fast neutron uh, nuclear reactions in an unmoderated environment, which when I say that, 90% of people, that doesn't mean anything. It just sounds like fancy fancy language that's technical. And if I laid out for you an elaborate argument why fast neutrons and I showed you a neutron spectrum and I, and I made this argument, you know, you could imagine somebody without that much education, without a deep enough knowledge 
uh, uh, going along with the argument. It's actually a fairly technical argument. It happens to be totally wrong, like mm. demonstrably easily wrong, totally misunderstanding things. But it's just technical enough that it makes it sound like not complete nonsense. And then they right. salt the rest of the argument with a lot of weird nonsense and innuendo. And in the end, a lot of these people, amazingly, at the end, you find that classic rock bottom of conspiracy theories of anti-Semitism, which is just amazing. You get through all the layers and, right. and you end up with, have Somehow. you noticed how many Jews made the first bomb? And then right. it's like, right. ah, but. <laughs> right. When you get all I, the I way to, through it. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I want to just say one thing, though. Uh, you are saying about the presentation of the data itself. I mean, this is something I've wrestled with with the nuke map because data without context doesn't really tell you that much. And I've tried to get people to think about the context without ramming it down their throat. And that's difficult to do. Um, and so this is why some of these things like, yes, if I set off a low yield nuclear weapon on a Chinese military base, that doesn't really do that much unless you consider the context on which you would be yeah. setting off a nuclear weapon on a Chinese military base, which would be a massive context, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, well, I think that's a good segue point. Just to remind people, you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking with Alex Wellerstein. Are you good on time for maybe 15 more minutes, Alex? Or are you? I would. Gonna... Yeah, I'm fine. I want to say one other thing though on this nuke map thing because it, yeah. it came into mind. The first version of the nuke map just drew circles. That's it. Yeah. And I noticed that people were using it in ways I didn't want. I don't want to say that I don't approve of. I don't care how you use the nuke map. That's you use the tool how you're going to use it, right? I don't. I don't tell people. But some people were doing things like setting off a low-yield nuclear weapon in, so like the types that North Korea tested before they tested really big ones, um, in New York City and saying, this barely goes across Central Park. And then they would say, it's not a big deal. And I'm realizing that this was a disconnect between the data and the interpretation of it, because obviously setting off even a low-yield nuclear weapon in Man midtown Manhattan is going to have immense consequences. But geographically, it doesn't look like a large area. And so right. this was actually exactly why I developed the ability to estimate casualties so that you could supplement that data with other data. And you could say, oh, yes, it is not physically large. But yes, if you drop it in midtown Manhattan, you're still going to kill 100,000 people in one minute. Uh, and to, this is the kind of stuff I wrestle with with my own tools is if I see people going down pathways that I think are definitely wrong and dangerous, I try to think, well, what can I do to make that seem, you know, to, to make the reality of that stand out more? Well, I think this is back to your earlier point about the problem of visualization and things like circles without context. So, you know, a big circle over Wyoming and a big circle over New York State mean different things. And if we're talking about COVID-19 or we're talking about nuclear weapons, that contextualization is important. And you said nuke map sort of undergirds, you know, many of the thinkings, thinking that has gone into the research and the formation of your book, Restricted Data, a History of Nuclear Secrecy in the United States. So. I guess this is like now people want to use nuke map they should be required to read the book right i mean it, it, well the, but, <laughs> it's a long book <laughs> but it's another i mean i think your scholarship is unique in this in this regard that you've developed this tool that allows you to interact with with something with a threat an existential threat but you've also created a historical narrative 
which presents, I'm assuming, similar data, similar understandings, but roots them in a historical context and a historical narrative. Can you talk a little bit about the questions that animate the book? So the book is about how people try to con conceptualize uh, controlling nuclear weapons by controlling information. And so in a way, the book is the sort of precondition to how we even can talk about the bomb at all today, what we say about it, what we think we know about it, what we think we know about its history, all of that sort of stuff. And um, and it's a work of scholarly history, and it doesn't have any visualization, <laughs> and it has a couple graphs, that kind of thing. Um, but for me, the linkage between the two is that they're both extremely connected with questions of how non-experts interact with uh, this sort of dangerous knowledge, uh, how they interact with sort of expert knowledge and expertise, the relationship between uh, uh, these sort of uh, governments and sort of control of expert data, which is is was always a tension. Um, for me, one of the big takeaways of the book is that none of this was ever straightforward. There was never a time period in which everybody said, yes, indeed, let's let the government run everything that would be great and make the most sense. These things were always in tension, and you always had sort of tensions about uh, what degree of control was a good idea of control and, and whether you could even achieve control through the sort of manipulation uh, or, or holding back of information. Um, it's... One of the things I like about the nuclear topic in general is that you can't get away from these kinds of concerns. Mm -hmm. And you, you in principle, can't get away with them in almost anything. I mean, as, as you know, in our field of history of science and the science and technology studies, uh, one of the foundational ideas is that, you know, the data never speaks for itself. Everything is mediated. You can't have the data unless you look for it, uh, things of that nature. And with nuclear, because of the secrecy, it's unavoidable that every bit of data you have on it has an interesting story about how you have it. Even something as simple as like, what shape were the bombs in World War II? That wasn't released until 1960. Uh, uh, you know, uh, what exactly, how powerful is this weapon going to be? Some of that information was basically not released until the civil defense attempts. And why would you release some of this information? Well, because they're trying to motivate certain types of policy and things like that, like you mentioned before. And then you can take that and start applying it elsewhere. And one of the things I found really interesting about the COVID uh, discussions that have been going on, and I'm sure you've noticed this, but um, I wonder if they will have long-term impacts on sort of public epistemology or, or, or civic epistemology, as, as uh, Sheila Jasanoff calls it, in the sense that people are now, I'm, I'm seeing lots of people start talking about methodology and data, who I am not sure gave it a lot of thought before here, but people who say will say things like, well, it depends on the rate of testing and you're not going to find, if you don't do the testing, you won't get the data. These kinds of concerns, which are foundational to people in our field, now feel like they bled out and into a sort of public discourse. And I wonder if that will have long-term sort of methodological impacts or not, you know, but anyway. Well, even the president has said, uh, whether you like his assertion or not, if we don't test, we don't have as many cases. Which is so banal and obvious, and yet this is a major point a, in our literature, it, right? It like is. You, you won't about find data. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You like have, the data needs to be made. How will you know made. that truth unless you make that data? He's he exactly. didn't say it quite that way, but 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm not taking so, the Donald Trump STS intro seminar. Um, <laughs> it's but not, it's you, like another thing you can blame us on STS, I guess. Yeah. But just to, there's <laughs> one thing. Of, yeah. Um, also another call. But uh, <laughs> to come back to this question um, about secrecy, because throughout mm. the Cold War, you go from... Um, you know, the idea that nuclear weapon, I mean, everything goes into making them, but even about communicating with the public is is absolutely clamped down to a period of time in which it's not, you can't do that anymore. And there's sort of activism that follows. I, it's not a linearity. I don't think there's still a lot that we don't no. know about the nuclear weapons complex. Um, and even but the it, clamping down is, is more of a, I'd almost call it more of a mediation than a clamping down because mm -hmm. they're always giving out information too. Mm -hmm, they're just being mm -hmm. very selective about what they give out. And they even are doing this, they start this even as, as early as the Manhattan Project. They realize explicitly that the best way to keep a secret is to give away a lot of information that doesn't interact with, you know, you give out the sanitized version and that gets people to stop asking as many questions as they do if you just say you can't know something. And this interaction to me is really interesting. And it has changed over the years and it's gotten complicated. And it's very bound up with trust. And this is, I think, a core thing at the moment with the government and experts. We're in a real strange situation where you can have people like you and me who generally trust experts, who are unsure that they're going to trust all the experts because we can't tell how many of them are in this sort of bizarre, unusual political situation, which we can say that even if you and I can say that, yes, yes, expertise is always political and official expertise has always got all these problems. But this feels kind of, you know, when I'm sitting there wondering what's going on at the CDC yeah, uh, and wondering to what degree is this being tampered with by a very overtly partisan politics shift, to me, that feels very unusual. And it puts me in an awkward position. It is unusual. And it's, it's you know, I mean, the, the kind of formation of alternative data, the kind of story that like Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway might tell us, um, is not this exactly. Right. This is much messier than that. You know, I don't feel like uh, vaccine manufacturers or, or the Russian government are necessarily behind the dysfunction in the federal response to COVID-19. I can't quit. It's uncanny. I can't quite put my my finger on it, but I think you're exactly right. It has led to an erosion of trust, even among people who will go to the ramparts for expert culture. We, we may not even agree with the conclusions that experts reach, but we generally endorse the idea that expert knowledge is useful in society. Let and me come exists. To, and exists, right, in the first right. place. Let that there is to, a difference between being an expert and not, right? Yeah. It looks like um, this is probably Megan... Finn, um, with a question here for you. <laughs> Nuke map is really terrifying. Thanks for your work. How do you think about radiation health effects? And she just follows up. I've been thinking about the mediation of COVID knowledge and they've been learning a lot, thinking with books on nuclear radiation, again, making this um, parallel to Nuke map and where we find ourselves today, thinking about works um, by Adriana Petrina and Olga Kunchinskaya about the politics of radiation. So coming back to it, um, what about radiation health effects? Because here now we have this crossover between the nuclear and the COVID. We're thinking about public health, ultimately, if we, if we boil it down. I mean, people are interested in bomb yields and buildings being destroyed. But the real story of nuclear weapons is also about long-term radiation effects from manufacturing nuclear weapons, the, the nuclear power complex, and everything else that goes along with it, those long-term effects. 
And and the the nice analogy there, and this works really well with especially Petrina's work and some of these others. Um, you, you've got kind of two things going on at once. You've got you've got an uncertainty, sort of fundamental uncertainties about the health risk, right? So this is one of the issues with radiation risks even today, but certainly back in the past. Uh, uh, people are aware that yes, yes, very high levels of radiation are going to kill stuff, right? There's a lot of uncertainty at lower levels, uh, chronic exposure levels, things like that. And there's big disagreements between various expert communities, um, some of which argue that the others, both of which argue that the other side is basically politically influenced in their conclusions, which doesn't make it any easier as an outsider to disentangle these things, about how you translate some of these uncertainties into policy, right? Uh, what, what's a, a safe amount of radiation to have, for example? That's a, that's a very fraught question in health physics and uh, 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 other sorts of uh, fields along those lines. Um, and then you tie that in at times with specific types of politics which either want to deny the radiation effects or amplify them, right? Mm -hmm. So Petrina's work is on Chernobyl uh, uh basically in the way in which Ukrainian nationalism sort of embraced the sort of Chernobyl victimhood as a way of of creating sort of an anti-Russian strain, right, of, of nationalism, right? It's sort of that this was their sort of unique cross the bear that was put upon them by the Russians, for example. And you get this with other areas with radiation too, where it's, uh, 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 you know, victims of testing or even people who uh, want to see themselves uh, rightly or wrongly as being sort of the victims of government activity or something like that. So if you were lived in any city down one of a test site and you got any kind of cancer, the odds that you would in the late Cold War think maybe this is the result of nuclear testing is pretty high, even though actually identifying the cause of any individual cancer is is basically impossible most of the time, right? And so I feel like with the COVID stuff, I've been thinking a lot about uncertainty and what you do in the face of uncertainty with this. The US government in the Cold War, its approach to this was basically, for most of the Cold War, was to put national security higher than uh, potential health effects to the populations that would be exposed. And they could rest on that uncertainty to do so. They could say, well, we don't really know if this is a problem and it's hard to measure that it's a problem. And since we don't really know, and it seems like it might be okay, we're gonna assume it's okay because what we get out of this is a really high benefit. And that's you know totally against a precautionary principle approach. Sure. It's totally against being preemptive. And uh, to me, with this COVID thing, I've had a lot of times and a lot of discussions with people where they'll say, well, we don't have it proven that this particular way is the way the virus spreads or that this particular, you know, shutting down the restaurants is going to help us or something like this. Uh, what should we do in the face of the uncertainty, knowing that there may be consequences either direction from these? And, you know, there is no great answer on that other than, for me, going back to what you value the most, right? Right. Do you it's value the economy or do you value people's well, lives? And obviously exactly. these are intertwined, but. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's where the, at, at various moments when the sort of like national existential threat is out there, it allows for this kind of cost benefit analysis to catch hold in the public. And maybe in the early days, you know, in the 1990s, we were in this period of time, well, the Cold War is over. So we're going to get a whole bag of risks, how are we going to evaluate which ones the federal government should invest in research and in various sorts of things? And after 9-11, that was settled for a decade. 
And we've been drifting back to this sort of like, there's a lot of hazards out there, climate change, we've got all these different things. How do we determine? Because there's always going to be give and take in terms of policy, lives lost, what we protect and what we don't protect. And it was amazing. And this is really clarifying talking to you about this because the president and not only the president, many and governors as well, made it very clear even before the pandemic came to the United States. National security in this sense is the national economy and we must protect that at all costs. And if some people need to die, I mean, even some people went on television programs and said, you know, they were old folks anyway, uh, you know, and we, they wouldn't want to pass economic hardship down to their children. I can't remember which Trump yeah, administration which, official went on television right. and said that. Zool said this, yes. Testing <laughs> out this sort of argument. It didn't take, but it didn't not take. And we, I think that's one of the things we've found ourselves in, a sort of state-by-state state approach to where ultimately you put caution. Do you put it in taking some greater risk with the economy or some greater risk with lives, and obviously, it's not as bipolar as all of as all of that. I need to give you your your time back and your dinner time. I guess we're up on <laughs> on time here. I did want to let me get one more quick question in, which is just um, what is the reinventing civil defense project? Oh well, it's a long conversation, but okay. the, the idea behind reinventing civil defense is if you want to take these kind of questions about getting people to reconceptualize certain types of threats and our focus is on nuclear threats so that they actually will approach it in a non-abstract way and actually make it salient in their mind. Uh, make the nuclear threat not some sort of obscure possibility, but make it something that you actually can think through and see as something that's real in the world in the way that and the example I always gave before is the way that germ theory is real in the world to people where they, and this is all of these examples feel very strange at this point, but yeah. can motivate you to wash your hands, for example. And uh, 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 even though you can't see the germs and even though it's, it's, it, it is a form of expert knowledge that, you know, is actually relatively recent in human history to have this sort of thing, you know, how would you go about doing that? And the approach we've been, sort of exploring is, is civil defense, of course, in the Cold War had many problems with it, obviously. Um, uh, it, 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 it was often driven by certain types of political narratives that made some of its advice not very great, for example. So, um, for example, a lot of, in, in, in various points in the Cold War, they put a lot of faith in the ability to evacuate large cities. Um, the, which is not practical. And every study they did said was not going to be practical. But to do otherwise was to admit that you couldn't do anything about large cities and that was politically unacceptable, things like that. So there's a lot of issues with civil defense in the Cold War. But the question we want to ask is, what if you took the idea about making these threats personal? Because that's sort of the internal kernel of civil defense, making your relationship with nuclear weapons a personal one and then try to find ways to do that again with different sorts of media around the, uh, uh, the question of survival, assuming that that's the sort of way to make it personal. And, uh, uh, and so exploring different ways of doing that through all sorts of different media, games, movies, uh, talks, websites, whatever, podcasts. We, we funded a bunch of different things, plays. Um, yeah. And uh, it was an interesting project. It's, of course, like everything, it's gotten weirdly stalled because of this pandemic. So 
we were in the last phase of data collection, but now we don't have anybody to collect data from because it's in-person data collection. And uh, right. So we're going to have to, we've, it's actually been extended longer than it was meant to. And we still don't have all the final results of the data of which of these tools was useful. And we're going to probably have to figure out in the next few weeks what we plan to do is we're going to keep extending it until the world is regular again. When will that be? Right. Uh, or, or refocus what we want to do for these last phases of the project. But this is the idea is, is can you can you hack people's brains to make them think about nuclear weapons and, and differently? And then could the the ways in which you did that extrapolate to other kinds of threats? And of course, the weird thing about the whole project is that you do have this major catastrophe happening in the middle of it, right. which has both shown that there are ways to make people think really differently, of course, about threats that are at hand. But you'll also get the significant resistance, which I, I don't think, I mean, the joke that many people, including myself, had made with, with this pandemic is, you know, you have conspiracy theorists in some of our literature on like pandemics, right? Like Contagion, the movie, for example, you have the Jude Law character, right? Um, but you you don't have the Jude Law character being the president of the United States and then 30% of the country no. agreeing with him by default. That's very strange, and it, it, it really complicates any kind of public health model and any kind of public communication model. And I've talked with people at FEMA about nuclear, you know, how they would communicate about nuclear threats in the event of a nuclear weapon going off. And I don't think they have really assimilated the idea that there would be a significant conspiracy theorist denialist part of the population yeah. that from the moment something happened would be working to create alternative narratives for whatever end. Um, that really complicates a lot of public health issues. And so I've, you know, these are the kind of things we would kind of say idly before the moment. And now that we're in this moment, it's, you know, it's kind of unavoidable. But you've just described this, what we would have called a sort of through the looking glass kind of thing. I mean, the movie you just described, nobody, no producer in Hollywood would have greenlit that movie two years ago. And now they're clamoring for those scripts because that is the reality we see now with every disaster that from Sandy Hook. I mean, now I've even looked back in time. I didn't, you know, I was re looking at, I was, like you said, having a little discussion online with someone about the World Trade Center the other day. Um, and I went back and reread NIST's report from 2006, and I had missed something totally. Their FAQ that they sent out to the public, full half of it was debunking the, the yeah. Building 7 um, inside job conspiracy. I brushed past that in 2006. I said, that's fringe stuff. I'm worried about that. I want to know about fire protection. I want to know about fireproofing. I want the real stuff. This has been brewing for, this has been brewing for, for a while. Yeah. I think we're, we're going to have to probably leave it here. I promised on Twitter, I would ask you though, if you had to choose, and I'm going to send you in to brief a president. Um, I'm not going to say Trump, Maybe Trump. I don't know. You choose, um, and you and you have to brief them on how to talk to the public about a pandemic or nuclear war, which is the harder job. Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, at the moment, I think nuclear war would be harder because, at least with a pandemic now, we have some experience, and that's certainly going to be difficult. But the hardest things are the things that you. It's 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 hard to wrap your brain around because you haven't experienced it in this lifetime. And now that we have a pandemic, this will be the benchmark 
for a while for how we talk about risk communication and things like that. In the same way that the, the Hawaii false alarm was a benchmark for talking about false alarms and Chernobyl became a benchmark in, in Three Mile Island for nuclear in Fukushima for nuclear reactors and things like that. Um, I think at the moment it would be much harder to get the public seriously talking about a nuclear war. And that's just because it's not really on their agenda. But if you had asked me this uh, a year ago, right, that's the harder question. And I think in some sense, the pandemic might be the harder sell for that reason, because the kinds of things, there's a way in which nuclear war in most people's minds has a kind of apocalyptic finality to it. And part of what we're doing with the civil defense, reinventing civil defense, is pushing back against that a little bit, because that apocalyptic apocalyptic finality kind of can cut off thought about what's going to happen next. Right. And a lot of civil defense is about, as the movie goes, the day after. It's about thinking about the long, slower disaster that comes after the immediate acute disaster. I know that you've done a lot on these slow disaster ideas. Um, but uh, with the pandemic, you're asking about something, especially a pandemic that you don't actually stop, one that's going all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> I think you and I probably have a hard time wrapping our head around how long this thing is going to go. I mean, I'm sort of making fanciful plans for what next summer is going to look like. And uh, <laughs> and I don't know if that's appropriate at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, um, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Uh, just to remind folks, you've been listening to COVID calls and I've been talking with Alex Wellerstein and you'll have to send me the bill for the last 25 minutes over the time I told you, but it's just been a great <laughs> conversation. This is like every time I talk, to you, I come away with, I can't believe you're doing these three projects simultaneously. You finished the book, you get the nuke map is still running, the civil defense project. Um, I guess we'll have to try to get you back a little bit later in the, in and, the year. And there's even more, but yeah, 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 yeah. there's a lot of busy, you know, this is, uh, what else are we going to do these days? I know. Well, just everybody <laughs> should check out Alex's projects and the book will be out when? Uh, early 2020, 2021. So Chicago January, Press. I think something like that. Okay. Well, congratulations on that, and thanks for your time today, Alex. And just to remind thanks everybody, much, Scott. you bet. Just to remind everybody, um, COVID calls is on every weekday at five o'clock tomorrow. We're going to return to the discussion around fire, wildland fire, climate fire, and smoke with Boise State University researcher Luke Montrose. And uh, please join us back then for that. Until then, stay healthy, everybody. See you tomorrow, five o'clock. <laughs>